Church of Christ presents With Us, the sermon by the Reverend Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, December 22nd, 2019. Please pray with me. Restore us, O God, let your face shine, that we may be saved. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts lead us to you, for surely you are our light and our salvation. Amen. Well, as many of you know, my husband and I became empty nesters last September when our younger son headed east for college. And if I'm honest, I don't love it. I mean, there is a certain element of freedom having no kids in the house. The family calendar is a lot simpler than it was. When both our boys were home and playing sports and involved in leadership activities at school and in youth group and part-time jobs, it was It was a bit chaotic. And the house is much neater. I will never again have to utter the sentence, why is there a lacrosse cleat on my kitchen counter? Which is a sentence no one should ever really have to say at all, and certainly not more than once. But alas, I did. I don't miss the cleats, but I do miss the gales of laughter. The house just feels like it is always waiting for something. It's peaceful and it's calm, but it's waiting. So I was especially pleased last summer when our niece Dana asked if she could stay with us during this last year of her training to be a physician's assistant. She has rotations in the Portland area. So we got to have her with us all last summer and for six weeks this late fall. She's off now to Arizona, but she'll be back sometime in the spring. And what a delight it is to have her in the house. She's a lovely young woman, entirely herself. But in her, I see my brother's humor. I see my sister-in-law's quiet strength and courage. I see physical resemblances to both of her parents, but also the echo of my sister's face and of our maternal grandmother. In the arch of a brow and the sweetness of her expression, I am connected to those who are far away and even to those who have gone on. At Thanksgiving, we were joined by my brother and sister-in-law, their older daughter, Katie, my own two sons, and a second cousin. Maybe a first cousin once removed. I can never keep that straight. But anyway, she is family. The whole weekend, I was seeing and hearing resonances and family resemblances across the generations and down through the years. It's in our shared genetic makeup, but it is more than DNA that connects us and forges those resemblances. It's in certain learned facial expressions, the way we all tend to talk with our hands, a certain tilt of the head that some of us share when we are worried or questioning. It's the way laughter comes bubbling up, It's in the cadence of our speech. Some of us, more rapid fire than others, but none of us slow. Pretty sure that is not a genetic trait, but it is part of who we are, 
separately, and especially when we are together. And it's in the family stories that we tell over and over again across the years, adding new ones as we go. We tell stories that remind us of who we have been together and what we have meant to each other. Stories, funny stories, endearing stories, stories of births and deaths, accomplishments and failures, recoveries, kindnesses received and given. We tell stories that tell us who we are, where we came from, and what we value most deeply. They help us to recognize, and sometimes when we are feeling lost, even restore who we are. Our sons are back at home for Christmas now, and our older, our older son, Caleb, works as a staffer on Capitol Hill. He said to me the other night, oh, I wish Grampy John were alive now. Can you imagine how much fun the two of us would be having talking politics? And then, in a tone of wonder, as if he'd never noticed it before, I think that's where I got my love of politics and debate and hashing things out. I think it came from Grampy John. Of course, not all family inheritances are ones that we appreciate or inhabit gracefully or that are worth carrying on. All families have foibles and weaknesses and non-productive patterns of communication and in some even deep trauma that can also be part of our human inheritance. And as we approach Christmas, all of this time with my family and seeing each person connected to the others has made me wonder about what Jesus inherited from Mary and from Joseph. In Mary's Magnificat, which we heard last week, we hear an echo of the ancient prophets, but also an anticipation of the words Jesus will say when he opens his ministry. Mary sang, God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. Years later, the newly baptized Jesus went out into the wilderness to fast and pray. And when he had finished, he began teaching. He got to his hometown of Nazareth, went to the synagogue on the Sabbath, picked up the scroll and began to read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is his mother's son. In Mary's prophetic song and Jesus's announcement of his ministry, we hear familial and cultural echoes, the anointing of God, the announcement of God's presence, the care for the poor, and freedom for those who are oppressed. What did Jesus inherit from Joseph? In Luke's version of the birth narrative, Mary is the focus. In Matthew, we hear the story from the other side of the family, as it were. 
In Matthew, we find no annunciation to Mary and no visit to Elizabeth. Matthew never mentions a census or a journey to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There are no shepherds keeping watch in their field by night, no angel surrounded by the glory of God, no multitude of the heavenly host, and no Mary pondering all these things in her heart. Instead, in Matthew, Mary was found to be pregnant, and we hear how Joseph struggled with that. In an aside, we readers hear at the beginning that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit, but the implication in the text is that Joseph did not know that. They weren't living yet together as man and wife, but they were engaged. An engagement at that time was a legal contract. Fidelity would have been expected. According to the law as it was written, adulterers could receive capital punishment. Now, much has been made of that, that, that Joseph was very kind because Mary could have been stoned. But as New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine points out, there is no biblical evidence that this was ever actually carried out. Even quite spectacular sinners like David did not receive this ultimate penalty. The rabbis of Jesus' period always interpreted the law in a way that would preserve life. Like Matthew, they sought the spirit rather than the letter of the law. Seeking that spirit of the law and being righteous, Joseph decided he would end the engagement quietly. Joseph did not want to shame Mary, and perhaps he didn't want to shame himself. He also didn't want to marry a woman carrying another man's child, so he made up his mind to divorce her quietly, only to have his mind changed by an angelic visitation assuring him that Mary had not broken their covenant, that the child was from the Holy Spirit. He believed the truth of what he heard in that vision. I don't know if he liked it. I don't know if he was still wary of Mary, still afraid that he might look foolish in the world's eyes. But he believed enough in what happened in his vision to marry his fiancée. And he named the baby Jesus as the vision had instructed him to do. Naming in that day and age was the prerogative of a father. By naming him, Joseph claimed Jesus as his own, grafted him onto his own family tree, a family line that went back to David and back beyond that all the way to Abraham. In Jesus's adult life and teaching, we also see echoes and resemblances of Joseph's side of the family the determination to speak the spirit rather than the letter of the law, the ability to be open even in moments of challenge and stress to the voice of the spirit, to believe in the trust, trustworthiness of that voice and to take action consistent with it, to love beyond what might seem reasonable to anyone outside the situation who only thought they understood what was going on. We have these stories of the birth of Jesus, and we repeat them year after year to remind ourselves of the meaning of Jesus' whole life. For some people, the fact that the stories are so different from each other in Matthew and in Luke can become a stumbling block. They wonder, why are they so different? But it is too important a story to tell in only one way. 
Each gospel writer was writing at a different time and to their own particular community. Each gospel writer was writing and offering the story so that their particular hearers could also be grafted in. In the same way that Jesus' family may have told the stories that helped him to know who and whose he was, the gospel writers tell their stories to their communities and now to us so that we will know who, we, who and whose we are. You can read them as history or not, but perhaps more importantly than the question of how historically accurate they may or may not be, they are stories of who we who recite them are, people whose hearts are called to justice, people who seek for the spirit of the law, people who know how to listen for God and to have the courage to follow. Like all good stories, these stories are full of signs to carry with us. And the most basic one, as Isaiah wrote, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, a young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall call him Emmanuel. Now, as biblical signs go, that's not one of the splashier ones. I mean, parting waters, burning bushes, manna falling down from the heaven. Now those were signs. They got your attention. But pregnant women, you tend to run into them pretty frequently. You might even be one or live with one. But that perhaps is just the point. Some of God's best signs are like that, ordinary enough to have on hand every day so that they can keep on reminding us of what they stand for. We see a rainbow and we remember God's promise. We see loaves and fishes and we remember God's abundance. We see an expectant woman or a little child and we remember this expectant woman, this child, Emmanuel, for God is with us. This Christmas and every Christmas, we are invited to allow their story to be one of the stories that tell us who we are, one of the stories that reflect us back to ourselves and restore us, human, beloved, belonging to God's family. Listen, listen, listen.